Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ben Gilberti. We're very fortunate today to have as our speaker mentor, William Penny. William is acting Dean of the Prosperos and chair of the Executive Council. He met the school in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he took some classes from me in 1973. And then he moved to Santa Monica, California in 1974, where he joined the group there, developing deep and lasting friendships, as well as volunteering at the Prosperous Service Center. In 1978, he moved to Denver, Colorado, and worked with me, Zoe Robinson, Richard Hartnett, and others, and began his mentorship training under the guidance of Zoe. In 1985, William was invited to join the Prosperos Curacy as Thane's personal secretary. After Thane's passing in 1989, William continued to stay in Hawaii as a journalist, leaving the island in January of 2000. He married Alina Sophia Fenny in a ceremony at the Prosperous Assembly in 2004. As in any long journey, key players along the way provided guidance and support. Hugh John Melanothy and I in Santa Monica, Zoe and Richard Hartnett in Denver, Paul Tanswell, Konala Bradley, and Jim Renza in Hawaii, and numerous, numerous others. And this work, William says, no one makes it on their own. In addition to maintaining the Prosperous websites, William is active in the High Watch, the Measures Association, and the Prosperous Board of Trustees. Please welcome William Benny. Let's see, I got a, uh, yeah, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> I love I love the waving hands, Richard. It just makes me thrill. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> um, it's, I, great um, history, in my memory anyway, uh, working with Richard in Denver, that was just some of the best times uh, that I had in my whole life. And um, I have to also mention that, um, I mentioned this earlier, that, that um, in the mid to late 70s, Calvin Harris had a grooming consulting service that um, I was one of his main guinea pigs or um, pro bono work, I think maybe was probably the, probably the easiest way to say it. Um, but uh, one thing that I remember him saying to me that, that uh, I mean, among many things was that, uh, you know, natural fibers are the way to go. So, um, this is like a, a rule that I've carried forward through my entire life. And um, it um, speaks to, I think, the essence of Calvin, which is authenticity. It's about authenticity. And you want uh, to uh, have that in your life wherever you can find it. So I actually, 
uh, also following Calvin's advice, I looked around for things that were humorous um, to talk about today. And um, I may not be surprising to you, but I found in the news for the past week very little to be laughing about. Um, unfortunately, um, um, there's always something funny if you want to look for it, but um, I just thought it was worth mentioning that uh, we're in we're in very challenging times, and um, you know the moon wobble, the current moon wobble cycle, which we're just over the peak of moon wobble now. Things are beginning to settle down. It was pretty rough. People have mentioned to me how how they felt. It was a pretty rough period of time. So I think that in the context of all these things, partly that was uh, where I came up with the idea of uh, presenting this material called Building a New World. Um, and uh, it's not, uh, it's not an easy distinction to make, but I think we can try to do that in this, this little get together. Um, because I, what, I, what I saw in this was that, um, well, before we get into it, I do think I need to mention that this moon wobble was, was pretty rugged as we mentioned, but, um, you know, we've noticed it's not only did we have, uh, uh, the Ukraine situation, which is very obvious, right? I mean, that's that is so obviously a moon wobble phenomenon. Um, but um, you know, we've also have this these weather patterns, these extreme weather events, and um, those are not only in the United States but in Europe. They just got finished with two back-to-back -back storms that killed people in northern England. Um, and of course, those storms then go off onto the continent and do some damage there too. So um, yeah, we've had a lot of extreme weather. And I think that my favorite word for translating these days is extremes, because there are extremes everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there's one side that says we must do this, and there's another side that says we must do that. And don't talk to those other people who want to do this because they'll kill you. And the ones who say that they want to do this, say those don't do that. Don't listen to the people who say that because they want to kill you too. So where do you, where do you end up in all of this? I think uh, that a lot of this has to do with the new social media networks that have uh, erupted or, or emerged over time, because the social media networks are kind of um, designed to amplify um, things that get people's attention. And I've come to, I've come to the uh, perspective on this that what we're seeing with Twitter and with um, all the other forms of social media really has to do with something that's akin to a new muscle. So I'll just uh, remind everybody that, uh, let's say 1965 or 1966, 
one of the coolest things that you could do would be to get an electric guitar and an amplifier and go out to your garage with a couple of your friends and make a lot of noise. And what happened out of that is that a lot of kids made a lot of noise and they started actually listening to each other and thinking that, you know, let's do some interesting stuff. And finally, you began to get some actual music, but it was a matter of exercising a new muscle. There was this new technology called an electric guitar. And suddenly people wanted to know what it could do. So they started pushing it to its limits. They started putting fuzz boxes on it and putting the guitar next to the amplifier so that they could make really weird sounds. Um, and they'd made a lot of noise and they made a lot of bad, bad music. Um, but then there were some people who managed to take that and turn it into something very creative. So my feeling is that sociologically, or that's not a very good word. I don't like that word. Um, as a species, we have this new muscle, which is this new technology that joins everybody together. And um, one of my favorite commentators is a guy by the name of Ben Thompson. And he said that, um, the objective that Facebook set for itself was to give everybody a voice. And what they didn't realize that was that they really succeeded in their aim and were able to give everybody a voice that they would actually get humanity. <laughs> and that humanity has these built-in these built-in issues. So the issues in Facebook, um, you, not to uh, not to give them a complete pass, but part of the issues in Facebook have to do with the fact that, they're trying to give a voice to humanity and humanity um, humanity's got some, some challenges in terms of uh, um, communication skills and uh, love your neighbor and those sorts of things. But it's like a new muscle, if we can think about it that way. It's like the species has a new muscle and it's learning how to use it. And as an infant, uh, is learning how to use the different parts of its soma as it's becoming aware that, oh my goodness, I have toes. Um, it doesn't say that, but it starts thinking, what are these funny things on the end of my leg? Um, so the baby exercises the new muscle. And I'd, I'd like to think of the social media spasms that we're having from the perspective that our species is exercising a new muscle and it is the muscle of instantaneous communication. And of course, um, there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of uh, maybe bad decisions um, and uh, a lot of problems when you're developing a muscle that you never had before you don't know what it will do. And sometimes maybe it kicks out and hits somebody or maybe it uh, um, uh, uh, makes some other kind of problem. But th then you see, then there's the learning and we learn together. The whole species learns together how to exercise this new muscle. Um, and we learn by doing it wrong. And then people have to say, well, no, no, that's not how we can do this. Um, and so we have this big challenge that we're, we're all working on. This, this is actually all part of the introduction. I haven't really got into my talk yet, but it really does fit with what I'm going to talk about.
because the, the things that we're talking about were all part of the, what I call the identification of man, the problem solver. That is uh, our species um, being a problem solver kind of uh, organism. Um, all of these different social media networks were somebody's idea of solving a certain problem. I think a good example of this is um, to try and articulate my sense of, of um, the man, the problem solver. Uh, it is in contrast with man, the world builder. And these are two different kinds of modes. So the problem solver is exemplified, I think, really well by um, a, a corporation that got formed in the late 1990s that was, it was designed to enable online payments. You could, uh, you could use this form. And um, it was uh, picked up by eBay and then spun off. And the final result was the PayPal as we know it today. Um, now this was designed to solve a problem. Because if you remember in the late 1990s, um, you could present people with the opportunity to buy something online, but people really did not like the idea of giving their credit card information to a stranger over the internet. And so PayPal uh, put itself in the place of being the trusted, the trusted resource that you could use to make payments online. So, The kind of model involved here is that you're, you are um, identifying a problem that needs to be solved, and then you work like crazy to find an answer, solution to the problem, and you make a lot of money. And that's kind of the formula that the venture capitalist world, the venture capital world is, is uh, uh, run on. So you, you, you spot something that needs to be solved or you spot something that there's an opportunity to, to do things a different way. And then you work like crazy and then, you, and then that brings rewards for you. Now the motivation for this is um, in a lot of ways can be seen as very materialistic. Um, a lot of the uh, motivations have to do with um, wanting to be a big wheel. Uh, or the desire for financial security, even. I, I need to you know, make sure that I have a good financial sound basis for my family and my home. But as an example, one of the earlier contributors to PayPal was a guy by the name of Elon Musk. And he made a lot of money when eBay purchased uh, PayPal. And then he went on to found um, the very same year. Now think about this. He makes a lot of money from his, in, from his investment in PayPal. And then the very same year, he founds SpaceX. Now, SpaceX today is a wildly successful and recognized company. But in 2002, I can tell you, as somebody who worked in the space industry for 15 years, in 2002, a commercial spaceflight company was far from a promising proposition. 
the point here is that um, what happened is that Elon Musk decided that he needed to change this frame of reference in terms of the kind of problems that he wanted to solve. So instead of going out, I mean, as with what he had, he could sit back and invest his money in the stock market and just get richer and richer if that's what he wanted to do. But he's not that kind of guy. And believe me, I know there's, there's all kinds of sides to Elon Musk. So let's not get into whether he's a good guy or not. But um, <clears throat> so he shifted the scope of his problem though. So instead of thinking, okay, what is the next problem that needs to be solved where I can make a lot of money? He was asking himself, what are the challenges facing humanity? And he identified one of the major vulnerabilities of, uh, of our species, which is that we all, we all live on the same planet. And if anything were to happen to this planet, the species would be extinct. And so he decided to create a rocket company so that he could create space travel that was affordable so that people could finally find a way to make humanity a multi-planet species. Um, the same thing goes with Tesla. Um, Tesla was a, a big opportunity, but Tesla was nothing. Nobody was doing electric cars. It had been tried by GM. They said there wasn't any market for it. That was because it would, it would eat their regular market. So that's why they didn't do it. But so he put together the whole plan for not only the car, but also all of the charging stations you would need to have, right? And the entire framework for it, and then made it work. Now, how did he do that? Well, he found really smart people and he paid them all a lot of money and he made sure that they were working toward the vision. So my point in all of this is, you know, not that uh, Elon Musk is a great guy or that um, uh, we all need to be like Elon Musk. That's not the point. <laughs> point is that he shifted the frame of his problems. So it wasn't so that he changed his frame of reference from my own personal life and my own personal security to how do I help humanity survive? How do I help humanity solve the problems that are facing humanity. This is a real shift. And there's there's another level to this shift though. So um, all of the activities that I've been talking about remain pretty much in the category of man the problem solver. Um, it's, a, it's a mode of thinking, that is to say, it's a way of applying consciousness that puts itself to figuring something out. And there's a set of givens. We have these givens. We have certain things that we are solving for. We have a certain set of conditions that we're working within. And this is the context for all of the great uh, um, technology companies um, that we're looking at uh, nowadays. So Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, all of these companies. Uh, were founded to solve one or more problems. Um, I won't go into all that. That's not really relevant. But every single one of them has grown to a gargantuan size because their solutions were effective for those areas. So now, 
you know, we're reconsidering some of that now. We're thinking, you know, maybe, maybe the algorithm that, that um, runs Facebook and puts uh, the things into your feed that make you angry is not really the best way to run things. Or we're looking at Google and saying, well, maybe uh, the company digesting all of your data points and having a great deal of information about your personal history, um, maybe that's not the best idea in terms of personal privacy. Um, you know, in, in every case, you can raise criticisms and you can see how a reassessment is already underway um, about all of the companies. So there, I think it's safe to say that um, this kind of problem solving has unintended consequences often. Uh, whatever you create, whatever solution you find is really uh, the smart people uh, understand that every, every one of these solutions is a temporary fix. Nothing is considered to be a permanent solution. Whatever you approach with the problem solving attitude, um, it'll be subject to the same limitations of the human equation, what we call the human estate in the Prosperos, uh, you know, as the original situation. So you've created a better situation. It is a temporary fix and you're constantly moving on. And so I think it's time to introduce the idea of uh, the Prospero's idea of things, which is uh, uh, not that uh, you, you don't do problem solving in the Prospero's. Of course, everybody does problem solving. But there is a different side to, to us, to humanity, to, uh, to what we call uh, in the generic sense, in the anthropological sense, man. Although even, you know, even when I was working in the Department of Anthropology back in early 2000s at the University of Maryland, they still used the word man, capital M man, to represent the species. And I'm pretty sure that's no longer the case. I don't know what they use now. Um, but in this, just, I'm just saying this to, be, to, to let everybody know that this is a generic, uh, I'm using a generic term and it's not intended to suggest that uh, that the word man represents a person with, of a certain gender. These days, of course, you wouldn't even know because everybody's making, well, I think maybe the best way of putting it is everybody's trying to solve a problem about gender. They're trying to figure out okay, if I want to uh, access all the different sides of my personality, um, how do I solve this problem of my body? Or how do I solve this problem of how I'm going to be, be known in my community? And uh, as long as you approach it from a problem-solving side, there are real limitations. But there's another side to... Uh, our species, and that is the, the, the side of the world builder. And um, world building is quite different from problem solving. Problem solving is to meet the challenge, to find a solution. But world building 
engages the deepest part of us in restructuring the set of the givens. We're talking about here um, what you might call changing the game. So instead of finding a solution within the rules of the game, we're changing the game. Um, so, uh, and this is actually really important now because uh, we have, I have something very serious to talk about. And uh, that is the, this, um, you probably maybe have read about this, the, uh, the uh, Pluto return for the United States Sibley chart. Um, it's uh, all over the place in a lot of different forums. And most of the stuff that I'm aware of is kind of not really talking about the point. Um, anyway, that this date of February 22nd is supposed to be a big deal because that's when uh, Pluto is uh, reaches the uh, exact position of the Sibley chart Pluto. Um, and the only thing uh, that's important to me about this is that it represents the culmination of certain pressures, but the pressures are actually what we've been dealing with for the last 18 months. And I mean, for people in the United States, um, this is a separate category from COVID. COVID has come along with it, but there's something else happening in the United States. And when you talk to people who live in Europe and you talk to analysts who've looked at the situation, you know, the, the impacts of COVID in terms of the societies, didn't they, there haven't, they haven't been that extreme except in the United States. And so, we can just, if you want to factor COVID out of this equation for a minute and just look at the pressures in the United States over the last 18 months. Now that has to do with this Pluto return. Um, so what we know about Pluto returns is that, well, first of all, being in Capricorn, it's gonna take a long time that has to do with the way Pluto works. Pluto goes very quickly through several signs and then it takes a long time to go through others. And it takes a long time to go through Capricorn. So this transit, which we're just getting to the culmination of uh, later this month, two days from now, actually, um, it's really only the beginning because what happens is that Pluto moves forward. Now, what you will notice something, you will notice an easing off of things when Pluto moves forward because it's moving away from the, from the conjunction. It's moving away from the conjunction. But then what will happen, of course, is that Pluto will go retrograde. And then when Pluto goes retrograde, it's gonna be applying again to the conjunction, there'll be more pressure. So now that's gonna go back and forth until around the solstice of 2023. So you see, we're talking about a long-term process here. And what we know about Pluto transits is that um, we can be confident that after the solstice of winter 2023, we'll look around at the United States of America and it will not look like anything like the one that we are living in today or to be more precise, maybe the one we were living in, say a year and a half ago. 
um, that United States of America and the one that's coming are going to be quite different. And this we can practically guarantee because it has to do with the nature of Pluto. Um, so let's think about this for a second. We're talking about a deep, deep transformation of American society. We're talking about a period of, it'll be three years in total by the time it gets done. And um, uh, so that gives us the opportunity to be very anxious and very concerned. And one of the things that you, if you study psychology, you, you learn that when people are anxious and they don't know what they're anxious about, they just know they're anxious, they will find something to point to and say, that's the thing I'm anxious about. And I believe that's what we're dealing with here. Now, <clears throat> all of this has to do with setting up a sense of what the challenges are. Uh, because I'm talking to a group here of people that's dedicated to understanding the nature of abstract reality and understanding that appearances are not reality. That appearances are transient, that challenges are opportunities to apply energy, but that reality is fundamentally accessible at every moment, no matter what's going on. And that reality accessible means that your sense of identity, your sense of uh, the wholeness and the integrity of life is available to you at every moment. And we are at a time when we need to have more and more people who understand this and are able to communicate it with the people around them in their communities um, so that that sense of unflappableness can be carried forth into the larger world. All right, so getting back to my point, um, we have a, a problem-solving mode. Uh, that's what we're trained to do, and we're very effective at it, and it's very, uh, it's very effective in its realm, you know. I'm, I have direct experience with this. I, I manage websites, and I manage um, lately uh, uh, back-end server operations, and so In those cases, you're dealing with a problem. You've got a web page that won't work. You got to go in and change the code and fix it. Um, if you uh, <clears throat> and each of each of us has this area that we're good at this. Um, each one of us has areas in which uh, that their job is to manage certain things. Uh, I think, Sarah, you do real estate. And so if you're a realtor, you know about different things that have to be done for a person to get through a house sale. So those are the, you're a problem solver. You're helping people to get through whatever that issue is. Um, so everybody has their unique area where they're gifted or where they've developed uh, skills to take care of certain things. So this is the problem solving side of us. Um, and it works really well until we run up against something that like baffles us. In my case, it was uh, in the fall this year, I was expected to um, solve a problem that I had absolutely no 
and um, I had to uh, I had to somehow break through to an answer, which eventually I did. Um, and as, of course, as you know, when you're solved with a, when you're when you're uh, faced with a problem that you can't solve, um, for many many years, the answer that we've all heard about is uh, is prayer. And in my case, I translated. I did. I applied my version of prayer, which is to translate the situation that I was faced with. And the reason that we have prayer in the world, the reason that we know about it in our society is because we intuit that there's a higher power that we can turn to. And that, uh, that by turning to that higher power, we can answer the question that's beyond what our present capacities are. So from this then, if you've ever had an experience where you've done this, and it's, it's a translator, I've, I've had this experience on many, many times. Um, you begin to understand that when you are operating from this point of view, you understand that a soul-crushing challenge is the way in which transcendence finds its way into the narrow chinks and crannies of what you have become. We have a calcified sense of our abilities. And then along comes this challenge that is something beyond what we think we can do. But as we reach out and, and connect with that uh, higher reality of ourselves, we find that, there, that a transcendent force comes into our life and reinvigorates all that dried up stuff. So a challenge is soul crushing only to a puny soul, an imposter soul that is ignorant of its own source. And that's the, this is the unfortunate state that many of us accept as what we can expect from life but it's not at all the reality of our being. And it is not the reality of what we call soul. I think there's a bit of a, uh, well, of course we know that there are uh, people who are very concerned about uh, society being too secular. And there are people who feel like the, uh, spiritual side of their life is being uh, challenged by a godless kind of uh, scientific and secular worldview. This is the way that I felt in 1973 when I sat through my first RHS class with Thane. And uh, I, I was raised as a Catholic, or as Tom Charles used to say, he was reared as a Catholic. <laughs> but yeah, so I had that. Um, but I also had a strong sense of, of spiritual identity. I, 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 I can't describe or describe what it, uh, describe it very well. Um, but then, of course, I also understood physics. I understood uh, biology. I understood that the, um, the, all of the, the scientific method and everything 
and I was crazy. I was schizophrenic. I had two minds. One knew that there was something real about divine truth. And there was another side that knew that, you know, the scientific method was real and you had to weigh things and you had to compare things and all of that. So Thane provided this way of bringing those together so, so that you didn't have to crush one to have the other. You could, you, both of them have their place. And as you know, the, the principles of translation uh, uh, include everything. It's, uh, it, 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 it's not uh, uh, overly rational, even though it's a, it's a method based on logic, but it's a method that's designed to get you in touch with that which is beyond any kind of reason. Um, so the soul, yeah, we need to be careful about this word soul. Um, Mr. Gurdjieff said that the, he, he called the soul that which is highest in man. And he pointed out that in the English language, the word that describes the highest in man is the same that describes the word for the lowest part of us that walks on the ground. Um, you, can, you can almost see him kind of with his tongue in his cheek talking to people about this. But my own Catholic training had a lot to say about the soul. Um, and this is why I'm having a real hard time getting excited about soul work. Um, I'm not intending in any way to um, uh, say there's something wrong with that. I'm saying I can't use the word. When, um, what's his name? Oh, Thomas More came out with his book, The Care of the Soul. I looked at the title and I thought to myself, this man has got brass balls. Because anybody who thinks that they can talk about the soul in a way that does not conjure all of the stuff from 1,200 years of Christian theology um, is, a brave, is a brave soul. Let's put it that way. Um, so who is truly qualified to comment on soul? Not me, <laughs> not me. And um, I understand in the Jungian sense, people talk about soul in terms of psyche. Um, and all I can say about it is that that which is highest in us um, is transcendent of the psyche. And um, that may get me in trouble with, with uh, my Jungian friends, but um, the, if we avoid the controversial words, we can say that the highest in us is the reality self, the innate self, and that that innate self is the birthright of every person. It is ours, um, and it cannot be taken away from us. <laughs> I remember Mary Ridley saying to me one time, well, you know, if you carry on like that, they're going to revoke your consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't go away. It doesn't matter what happens. Your 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 inner self, your um, reality self, is with you, um, and is always available. So the challenges that I talked about earlier, um, I mean, what they call, what they really indicate to me is a tremendous calling forth of transcendence. 
there's not a person on this globe that is not going to be challenged to bring forth something new. Um, for some people, it will be a matter of survival. For other people, it will be a matter of having a meaningful life. Um, and so the way that we can get through this is by meeting the challenge and moving beyond the limitations of a materialistic thinking, the problem-solving viewpoint. The problem solvers are going to be just flummoxed over the next three years. And I mean, it's their job. So fine, they can keep working on the part of it that's their job. Um, but I think our job as people who are interested in the spiritual underpinnings and the spiritual reality of man or of humanity, as it were, We need to embrace a creative source that can build a new world. Um, and that creative source is not within the givens that we're, that we're working in now. It has to be something different. So it's not the same tired concepts of material security, uh, but what we want to work toward is we want to work toward um, understanding abstract principles um, that can call the boundless into manifestation. The only way that you can call the boundless into manifestation is by accessing an abstract attribute. Because if you try to use a material concept or a material idea, you're not going to get the boundless. You're going to get something else entirely. So we need to understand uh, uh, that we, we as our, our innate self and our innate reality, which is consciousness, that we have the ability to identify abstract attributes. And this is what you do in translation. You take a very material idea, um, problem X, <laughs> you take a material idea, you bring it through five steps of translation, and at the end you come out with uh, an attribute or a, a a statement that is a statement that relates to the boundless. It relates to the infinite character of the universe and not to a, a material thing that you started out with. So that, to that capacity, that capacity is the secret identity um, that can know what we call soul. It is that unique power of every person to throw off material claims and to penetrate to the heart of life where we encounter such terms as before you ask, it will be granted unto you and nearer am I than breathing, closer than hands and feet. So it is our power to create not just great enterprises, but new worlds for ourselves and for our larger community. And you don't need a venture capitalist and you don't need partnerships, and you don't need LLCs and all of the stuff that creates great material enterprises. All you need is your consciousness and hopefully a group of friends like you that can all work together um, to support the process of um, calling forth something uh, 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 that's unexpected. So 
the new world that is possible for us each to build. It will be unique to us. And it's, it's not motivated by uh, material success as such, even though, you know, material success may come. Material success may be part of what evolves. But it's the calling forth of the attributes of a boundless reality, which is truth or beingness, as we say in Prospero's, we, we use the word beingness. The ontological identity is, is uh, I'm going to be talking about this a lot when I do the 11th hour dispatch in a couple of weeks, well, several weeks. Um, but the ontological reality or the ontological identity is is an open-ended system. It's uh, it's boundless by its nature. And also the beingness of every person is inviolable and it is wholeness. So through our consciousness, and this is where the rubber hits the road here, through our consciousness um, and by ridding ourselves of false ideas, that is anything, anything that limits life is a false idea. we are capable of calling forth wholeness in our life and affairs. So we are a school of unlearning. This is what we do. Everything that is done in the Prosperos is geared toward unlearning. And that is basically unlearning all of the crap that's been poured in over the years to make you believe that you are a material creature, you are subject to material limitations, um, and you can only expect a certain amount of good in your life for whatever reason. Uh, all of these sorts of things um, uh, are to be unlearned. And I'm not saying that, um, that, that you, can, you should suddenly decide that you can fly off of your balcony and take a little uh, trip around uh, um, your neighborhood. Um, you can absolutely do that in your consciousness, if you wish to. <laughs> Don't get the wrong idea. But anything that uh, you, any person continues to adhere to in their life as a uh, uh, limitation, is something that is that is worthy of being unlearned. That's where the real power is, and that's uh, possible for us to take this power up and begin to use it. And when we do do that, when we take up the power that we have as consciousness to unlearn uh, material concepts and to embrace the boundless nature of our own beingness then you will experience a new path that's laid out in, in front of you. It's laid out clearly and you'll find the direction you need. These are important directions for the next two years. You will find the direction you need and the answers to the questions that have been baffling you uh, will take shape and you will be given the opportunity to fill a new role. You will be able to provide help and guidance to others. Sometimes it's a matter of counsel. Sometimes it's, uh, it's just being there for people. In any case, you will bring a new understanding with you, a quiet knowing 
that is a comfort and maybe for some people maybe a guide. There's a famous quotation from uh, James Madison. It says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place, oblige it to control itself. Um, I hope that uh, during the next uh, two, two or three years, the, the, the uh, people who are responsible for whatever comes to be the American Republic and its rulership, its leadership, has the wisdom to understand what James Madison put out there. For us, in our case, when we get to this understanding, uh, this quiet understanding, this knowing um, that can be a comfort or a guide to people, that is how you build a world where men are angels. And the time, <clears throat> the time-worn corruption of the human estate is thrown away and left in the dust. So all that remains is a world, a community, illuminated by the boundless integrity of infinite being. So this is the work that's in front of us. This is the work we have been prepared to accomplish. Let's go to it. Thank you, William, for very, very provocative talk.